for inspiration to be under the control of one's will. And Yogananda was busy dressing and getting ready to go and give a public function. And right at that moment, when this person asked the question, he said, yes. And he stopped. He said, take down this poem. He just stopped a moment, and then he started giving a poem. Father, when I was blind, I found not a door that led to thee. Now thou hast opened my eyes, and I find doors everywhere, in the hearts of flowers, in the gentle rain, in the song of the morning. And so it is that if you will allow God to open you up by opening yourself up first to him, when he takes away the blindfold from your eyes, when he takes away these these stoppers in your ears and you can hear his melodies, you will find that whatever inspiration you ask from him, he can give you. And there's nothing special to a person. I would never say that a person is a genius. Far wiser is it to say he has genius. And this is something we can all have. The more we turn to our source within, our source in God. In our day, there seems to be a great sort of dichotomy between those who believe in approaching reality through the heart and those who believe in approaching it through the intellect. Basically, I would say that the uh, established wisdom of our country is the intellect. The PhDs, the university system, the power structure, the uh, people in politics, all of them people who write for the magazines, etc., seem to depend primarily on the intellect for whatever insight and understanding they have of life. The other group of people tend to be more those people who are, I don't want to say less literate necessarily, but less involved in those things that make them spokesmen for our culture. It gives the impression, at least, of the American mentality as being heavily weighted toward the head. And I used to believe that this was the case. I used to think that our country was much too intellectual. And then I came to meet people that were of just the other type, people with warm hearts, great love, and in fact, that too is really a national characteristic of the people of America, kindness. It's something that many visitors to this country notice. Uh, it used to be said that, that uh, in order to win the space race against the Russians, the Americans only needed to get enough uh, together, get it enough together to put a dog on the moon. And the people of America would feel so badly for that poor stranded dog that the entire resources of our country would be put out to save that dog and bring him back. Well, there's more than a little wry humor in this. There's also a certain amount of wisdom in uh, the perception of the American mentality, which is not just the hard-driving businessman, the Yankee uh, bargainer, but um, also 
this heart quality that has made us really the first country, I think, in history that after being invaded, attacked by another country, and then beating that country, did its best to help that country get back on its feet. This is a very uh, exceptional thing, and I think it's what really makes for America's greatness. Well, this, by the way, what I'm trying to get at is that, in fact, if we want to achieve a harmonious view, a balanced view of reality, we need both heart and head, and in another sense we could say also we need neither heart nor head in the sense we don't want emotionalism, we don't want that kind of upset feelings that get in the way of any clear perception of reality, nor do we want that kind of dry intellect that uh, sees things only in terms of reason. The German philosopher Hegel said, all that is real is rational, and all that is rational is real. This simply isn't true. Music is not rational, and yet it's a very real expression of who we are, what our aspirations are. You can't say specifically that a piece of music is telling you this or that. You can't put it in words, because music is another language. And yet you know how you feel after listening to it. You know whether you feel energized, depleted, uplifted, depressed, filled with sentiment, totally dry of sentiment. Um, so many things can be expressed in music. And once a person gets into writing music, it's amazing how clearly the melodies express the aspirations of the heart. But neither of these uh, approaches requires, I mean, none of this approach to truth requires either the head or the heart as far as emotions go. It's something else. It's intuition. The intuitive faculty is a much more rounded thing. There's a feeling involved in it, but it's calm. There's reason involved in it, but it's also a calm reasoning. Many businessmen have a calm intuition, uh, an intuition uh, based on mental the, a mental outlook, shall I invest in this, shall we buy this new company, shall we develop that territory uh, and that product, and so on. They know what's right. Others will think back and forth, and they'll use their intellect only, and find that their intellect doesn't give them a clear, the clear satisfaction of knowing this is what I ought to do. There's always that nagging doubt that, well, even if this seems the best, who knows if we've invest investigated all possibilities, maybe that other one is best. As a result, also, they're never able really to commit themselves to a particular line of action, because there's all the other possibilities that um, linger, you might say, on the sidelines when the intellect is functioning by itself. But successful businessmen and successful scientists go beyond the intellect into into that level of intuition where they know this is right, this has to be right. Uh, Edison had that, that's why he was able to go through so many experiments before finding the right filament for a light bulb or the other kinds of experiments that he did, one of which, as I mentioned a few weeks ago, uh, took him into 40,000 experiments.
But he must have known, otherwise he wouldn't have wasted all that time. He was just sure that this would have to result, finally, in a successful experiment. And so the intuition, where normally it functions on a heart level, you feel this is right, you feel that's right, also the intellect can be intuitive if it's tied to a higher degree of consciousness. But the intellect by itself is, I would say, in answering the question, is it a friend or is it a foe? It can be a foe. It can be a foe for, for several reasons. One is that you're never really sure as long as you're living only on an intellectual level. That's why intellectual people tend not to be doers. They get themselves so going in circles as to the possibilities of a thing and the impossibilities, the chances of its being this way and the chances of its being exactly the opposite. They end up being armchair philosophers. They end up being uh, armchair travelers. They don't really go anywhere because they're, they, they've got a Hamlet complex. They, they rationalize themselves into inactivity. In this way, the intellect by itself is a foe. In another way, it's a foe because it gives you the thought that you've understood a thing because you've defined it well. But definition is not the same thing as understanding. A definition is only, you might say, an abstract of a reality, of, an, of a perception. It's not the perception itself. Can you define love? Absurd. The most carefully worded definition of love wouldn't begin to tell you what love really is. You'd have to experience it. And the same thing with just about anything. If you think to come at reality only through the intellect, then the intellect becomes a foe. The intellectual who, who is always rationalizing is not going to arrive at truth. But if he's not always rationalizing, in other words, if he uses his intellect to ask questions, then the intellect is wonderful. The intellect is that which helps you to reach out and try to understand. It's that which helps you to ask the questions that make it, make it obvious to you that you need to understand something more deeply. Without the intellect, you won't even ask the right questions. And until the right questions are asked, you'll never get the answer. <clears throat> so the intellect is, <clears throat> is a wonderful tool so long as we understand that it's, first of all, only that, and so long as we understand that it's only half the story. Now, in our day and age, there is the tendency, particularly because of the strong influence of science, to think that the heart keeps us from being able to perceive reality. Scientists pride themselves on having no feeling. Some scientists do. They pride themselves on not being emotional and therefore completely impartial. And in their impartiality, they're able to see a thing as it is without all the waves of uh, emotional likes and dislikes that say, oh, I hope it's this or I hope it's not that. They are able to, according to the theory, they are able to accept the, the defeat for an idea, the discovery that, that uh, for example, there was one well-known archaeologist who, working in Knossos on the island of Greece, he had a particular theory, born of his intellect, that this particular level of, of their civilization preceded uh, another one. And in his 
investigation, he suddenly discovered an artifact pertaining to the uh, what he thought was the higher level below what he thought was the lower level, indicating to him that it was clearly, it seemed to belong to a previous level. Well, he didn't want to accept that because he wasn't a true scientist. His heart was involved too, his feelings, and he was so committed to this being it that he moved that object onto the other level. Perhaps he thought, well, it was an anomaly, and why use an anomaly to disprove a perfectly good theory, etc. Whatever it is, we find that even scientists have a very hard time um, removing their feelings altogether. And I can imagine a group of scientists in a, uh, an observatory, uh, just like people at a football game, where you're hoping that somebody makes a goal and, come on, go, go, go. And I can imagine these scientists, if they aren't getting that excited outwardly, at least inwardly, oh, let it be so, let it be, let it be the Big Bang, don't let this theory disprove my theory, and so on. There's bound to be some of that, because we're human beings. And so scientists say that if we m remove that humanity, then our intellect will show us the reality. Well, the trouble is that the intellect is also a part of our humanity. And the intellect can be very prejudiced. The intellect can fool itself in many different ways without having to be bothered about the, uh, the confusion that might come from emotional commitment. The intellect is an inadequate tool for deeper understanding. For one reason, the intellect puts little things, takes little things apart, it analyzes, and doesn't always know how to put them together again. The intellect doesn't see life as it really is, which is as a flow. The intellect is what was operating when the great philosopher, or I should say ancient philosopher uh, of Greece, Zeno, uh, claimed to disprove the possibility of an arrow ever flying. Why? because he said that at any given moment in the flight of that arrow, it's not moving. And at any given, all these given moments in its flight, it's not moving. Well, how can it move and not move? If it's always caught in a point of rest, then it can't be moving. This was, uh, of course, a, sophistic, uh, a sophist argument, and he himself knew it wasn't true. And yet it was one of those sort of games that the intellect plays to try to demonstrate the logically absurd. What it really does, and perhaps Zeno had this in mind too, is demonstrate the inadequacy of the intellect itself. Because the reality is a moving reality, where the intellect tries to capture things in a frozen position. And as long as it can define, as long as it can analyze, as long as it can separate, then the intellect functions marvelously. But because it's given us a few data, don't imagine that the intellect can give us truth. It can't. The intellect cannot take us above its own level. The intellect cannot take us above the level of perception that pertains to our simple humanity. We are human beings locked in a body that has a brain and an intellect, that has a heart and feelings. But what we need to do is bring these two into a certain degree of harmony so that they work together. Because really, one without the other is just like uh, uh, a person with one leg. You need two legs to be able to walk. You need both feeling and intellect. That's why Einstein said that the essence of true scientific discovery is a sense of mystical awe, a feeling. But you see, the feeling doesn't have to be emotional. It doesn't have to be prejudiced. The feeling is that it's an intuitive thing. 
It's that thing that tends more to move with reality. It's that thing that, that uh, puts the intellect more in tune with the totality of things. And the intellect, influenced by feeling, becomes more of a moving thing, less dry, less like crumbling earth. The heart, influenced by intellect, becomes more dispassionate, more calm, more able to see things without the prejudice of emotional likes and dislikes. And if we are going to go into the next stage of our development as a human race, then what I think we need to do desperately is recognize the role that the heart plays, that feeling plays, and beyond feeling, intuition, in our exploration of reality. Because we'll always get a limited view, in any case, being human beings, until we can break out of this cage of humanity, we'll always be, to some extent, uh, prejudiced. But if we can use our full humanity, and instead of thinking that by starving half of our humanity we may arrive at more of the truth, that's absurd. If we can bring both into harmony, then we'll develop that degree of intuition which will help us to, by empathy, reach out beyond this body and perhaps gain a fuller picture even of the scientific world. Actually, it's an interesting fact that the greatest physicists in our age have reached the point where they're talking more in this term. They're talking of the infinite as being basically consciousness. They're talking of our need to relate to it more in, on an intuitive level. In a very interesting book by a man named Sullivan, J.W.N. Sullivan, I think were the initials, the book was called The Limitations of Science, a fascinating book. But he talked about a discussion between, I think it was Eddington and Einstein. And they reached a point of disagreement where they finally had to say, well, it was really a matter of taste. Can you imagine these great scientists who you think are going to reach things to the, bring things to the ultimate level of reason and finally saying that at that ultimate level it's really just a matter of taste? Well, that's what it basically is, as long as we're just looking at it from a standpoint of our human body. Yogananda used to say that the universe is center everywhere, circumference nowhere. And I think that explains why every civilization thinks it has the answer. Because no matter at what point you, try to, you begin your explanation of everything or your, you begin your approach to the reality of everything, if you begin it from that point, you'll be able to see everything quite reasonably in that context. So it is that one society will look at things from the standpoint of art, and they see everything explained in that way. Another will look at it in the point of, from the point of science, they'll see everything in that way. Another, from the standpoint of a social an orderly social structure, they'll see it in that way. And so we, in our modern arrogance, imagine that we finally have attained wisdom. But I put it to you that uh, an airplane pilot is probably just as likely to uh, be nervous as a camel driver, and maybe even more so. That he may, be, uh, may find it harder to be a full human being than a simple shepherd out in the fields of Israel. The important thing is not what you know with your head, but what it has done for you in your whole experience of life. And I would say, let your intellect and let your heart work harmoniously together 
to bring you to that, spoint, that, that point of inner totality, of inner harmony, where you can relate as a whole person to the world around you. And in that relationship, I think, you will be able to gain much more than if you starve your humanity in order to be able to define that world out there better. You will be able to understand it better, to put it finally, to the extent that you have understood yourself.